Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the weekly podcast where AA members share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. Today's episode features my interview with William B., a man whose story speaks to the effect of alcohol on a life already afflicted with mental health issues. Raised in a drug-infested part of London, William describes his childhood as horrible amidst family members who were sex workers. Rather than be shielded as a child from this dysfunctional environment, he was exposed to it to learn the harsh realities of life. Seeking relief from the daily horrors, William found alcohol at age 11 and proceeded on an eight-year odyssey during which he lived on the streets of South London for years, isolated in worsening mental illness that was fueled by alcoholism. Sleeping on cemetery benches and hustling just to stay alive, William slipped through all of London's social service nets available at the time and was completely ignored by society. As he became sicker from alcoholism and his life on the streets, his options evaporated and suicide appeared as the only way out. Fortunately, the bottom William hit didn't kill him, but left him on the doorstep of Alcoholics Anonymous at age 19. He entered the rooms shirtless with piercings, an orange mohawk, and a floor-length black leather coat. He was unexpectedly welcomed by a well-dressed middle-aged woman who simply offered him tea. That small gesture of kindness was enough to keep him coming back for days and weeks to come. Still feeling the outsider, even within AA, William's response to AA was largely antisocial for a number of years during his early sobriety. He kept largely to himself and his relentless study of the big book and AA literature. Over time, however, William's self-imposed boundaries lowered enough for him to experience the gifts of fellowship and service to others. From that point until today, William has become a valuable member of several home groups and purveyor of service throughout his London AA community, as well as online via Zoom. Throughout his 23 years of sobriety, he has often considered himself an odd duck in AA, but his actual work in the program has kept him firmly anchored to his own sobriety while facing his life with growing humility born of actual experience of working with others. William's story is a fascinating journey from physical, mental, and spiritual destitution to total redemption at the hands of AA Fellowship. His well-worked program and daily presence in AA meetings has uplifted many whom he has touched with his simple message of hope. I'm grateful for William's friendship and believe his story on this episode of AA Recovery Interviews will touch listeners on many levels. So, gather your biscuits and tea, sit back, and enjoy the next 65 minutes with my mate and AA brother from across the pond, William B. My name is William. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, William. I'm so glad that you could do this interview today. You and I have gotten to know each other over the past couple years in a meeting that we both attend out of London. I've enjoyed the times I've heard you share. So looking at your smiling face, I'm wondering, how did a guy like you ever end up in AA? Alcoholism, Howard, is how I ended up in AA. So Good answer. I got sober June 5th, 1999. Wow. So you're coming up on 23 years? 23 years. And how did I wind up here? Well, the basic story is I'd had enough. So I came in young. I would have been 19. Uh Uh-huh. And I'm a classic case of I could have come in here at 17 or 16 or 13, well, maybe even 11. And 
so alcoholism kind of got me it got me quick and it got me rather violently and I knew I had to do something about it. it it's as simple as that I knew I had to do something about it it was going to kill me now it wasn't necessarily going to kill me sort of medically if you know what I mean sure it wasn't it, it wasn't necessarily I was gonna have my liver pack up or long-term health stuff but for me it was getting to the stage where fights and blinking suicide attempts and violence and all of that were going to kill me all done in blackout all done while drunk that's quite a variety of things that could have taken you out uh could we uh lump uh drunk driving in there and stepping out in front of buses you could you could possibly lump stepping in front of buses in there. You couldn't lump drunk driving in there uh-huh. because I'm currently learning to drive in recovery. I've got this whole theory because I've been in AA meetings for what twenty and you say twenty three years now, listening to people talk about how difficult it is to drive and how angry you get when you drive. I live in London, so there's not really been any impetus to learn how to drive. And it turns out driving is much like anything else. If you're nice to people, they're nice back. Yeah. And it's an extremely good little arena to practice your programming, you know? Yeah, practice your humility and restraint of tongue and pen and four-letter words and middle finger flips to people. And I can also tell you, I learned a little lesson, oh, what, two weeks ago, and it was a little sobriety lesson about the easier, softer way. Mm -hmm. Because I've spent two years trying to learn how to drive manually. Mm. And a dear friend of mine who's an ambulance driver in San Francisco... Mm -hmm was kind enough to ask me why why is it taking you so long to learn how to drive and i said well the gears they're terribly complicated and he said i drive an ambulance for a living i can't drive manually <laughs> only only james bond and batman have cars that you need to learn manually from and i had my first automatic lesson maybe two weeks ago and it's the simplest thing in the world it is I took the easier, softer way, Howard. And, and <laughs> yeah, I get it. It's a metaphor for recovery. Automatic driving is that. You had mentioned that you probably could have stopped earlier than you did, and it sounds to me like there was some kind of progression up to that point. What were things like in your family of origin, in the house in which you grew up, that might have precipitated the drinking to begin with and perhaps the reasons to drink? In, in a word, Howard, what were things like in my family of origin? They were horrible. Horrible. Okay. <laughs> if, 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 you, if you like it in a single word. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm reluctant to say alcoholism mm-hmm. with regard to my family because, as you know, one of the things we learn to do in recovery is we learn to not say other people are alcoholics, True. if you know what mm-hmm. I mean. We, we learn to say that we are. Yeah. What I can tell you is there were enormous amounts of abuse mm-hmm. uh one side of my family great deal of sex work mm-hmm. and that is an unusual thing to grow up around a highly unusual thing to grow up around and to put it nicely affects the way you look at the world I'll bet. and you and, and you see a number of things at a terribly young age that you shouldn't see mm. so from that from my sort of mother's side of the family there was a very loose kind of laissez-faire attitude to alcohol. Did they not try to shield you from what was going on or just enough of it slipped through to affect you? Didn't try to shield me in the least. Mm. Um, There's a very strong feeling of the quicker you're exposed to stuff, the quicker you toughen up. So my very earliest experiences of drinking were essentially about blackout drinking. I see. From From a very, very young age. We're literally talking... 
before primary school ended. 11, 12 years old. We're talking before 11. And it was literally about getting to blackout in order to shield yourself from reality as quickly as possible as a very, very conscious decision. And that's sort of how I grew up. Did you try and stop on the way to blackout, whatever the feelings were before you would blackout? Not really. I'm sort of an efficient person. Uh huh. It, it sounds very bizarre to say, yeah. but I'm a very efficient person. So my thinking was, from the very earliest age, alcohol kicks you out of reality. And therefore, I wish to do that mm -hmm. as soon as I possibly can, you know? So I, I, I don't really have any stories about progression in my drinking, about it starting off kind of all right and then gradually turning into something horrific mm -hmm. um and i don't if i'm being mm -hmm. honest with you howard i don't really have any stories about my drinking being sociable either because i was extraordinarily unsociable when i drank so socially unacceptable yeah. is what you might call me when i drank um violent brutish and short is how i would describe my drink so I've, I've heard that from a number of my guests who grew up in that kind of environment. And what was difficult was that drinking was the only escape that they had at the time. And yet it was also the same thing that caused more problems, but in other areas of their life. So they could escape the madness in the family only to find madness in their social groups or in school or in other places. Do you have siblings? Yes. I, I don't really know them. Mm -hmm. Somewhere around the age of 12, my mum went off and started another family. There are siblings. And it's a funny thing in recovery because lots of people come from difficult family circumstances in recovery. And I've got a sort of... I'm, I'm in touch on Facebook and everything. But I should, you shouldn't say you. You should say I. I've found that I spent a heck of a lot of time in, in sobriety complaining about not being normal and complaining about not having access to family and normality and how come I grew up like this and how come I missed out on that. And at a certain point, self-compassion, self-love kicks in, uh -huh. and, and you sort of realize almost they're missing out. <laughs> do, you know, do you know what I mean? Well, there's an expectation, isn't there, that once you get sober, somehow things are going to all straighten out in all areas of your life, and it's, I think, a rude awakening to find out that it doesn't for the most part. There's a line in the big book, I'm something of a big book basher, because if I'm speaking in a meeting, it's a challenge for me to go 30 seconds without saying big book. I'm, I'm awfully into the big book. Um, there's a line in the big book where it's talking about yes. service, and it very simply says, some of us will get our family back, some of us won't get our family back. We don't drink no matter what. Mm -hmm. And that's very true. I've, I've known so many people get sober, and it's healed everything in their family, and their wife has cheered up, and all of this. But very often, you'll have found this with a lot mm -hmm. of your guests, very often, you not drinking causes problems and it causes tension because people are so used to you being this mess up, you know, that you suddenly being straight and sober mm -hmm. is a significant problem. And yeah, and I, and I found that with the, with the couple of people who were around me when I was drinking and to a lesser extent with the family, me not drinking was rather more of a trigger than me drinking, because you start to notice the way you're being treated. A trigger to who? who? Who is it a trigger for? The couple of people who were still around me at the end. So, the, and, and the couple of people who were still around me at the end were incredibly toxic, sort of using relationships, um, dishonest, rather, um, I wouldn't say criminal relationships, but the kind of relationships you have at the end of your using, where you're there for what you can get from each other, mm -hmm. if you know what I mean. It's essentially, 
can I get some money out of you to get a drink? Can you get some money out of me to get a drink? And I immediately found that me sober, um, it ruined my social life, <laughs> such as it was, it ruined my social life. And and I'm having this with um with sponsees at the moment. I'm I'm going through a funny thing. I picked up three sponsees in the last couple of weeks, and all of them are very, very early days. Uh-huh. So we're talking weeks, days of recovery. And all of them are going through that peculiar thing of I'm sober now and the people around me simply don't like it. Mm-hmm. My family don't like it. My friends don't like it. Oh yeah. Getting sober is, um, as I say, it can be quite provocative for the people around you. Sometimes they just accept it, but it can be uh, can be a challenge for those around you. Of course, and and being the big book aficionado that you are, there are plenty of references in Alcoholics Anonymous to the different things that can befall a person who becomes sober, whether it's losing a relationship or regaining a relationship, whether it's gaining or losing social groups or standing in business or in one's church. I mean, it can go either way. My experience has been that usually the relationships that weren't working before I started drinking didn't start to work after I quit drinking, especially those that go back to early childhood where that hard wiring is installed. And then you spend the rest of your life trying to uninstall it or work despite it. I would wonder whether you found that to be the case in your own journey. Yes and no. I'll tell you, I'll tell you a very quick story. I started going to a big book study last week. Literally, I, I lucked out. Hmm. I saw a little advert on Facebook, a little flyer on Facebook, for a big book study in Wales that was that was starting that afternoon. Mm-hmm. And get this, Howard. They didn't start on the first page of the big book. Guess where they started? They started on the dust jacket of the big book. <laughs> so, so, I'm do, so I'm doing this little big book study in Wales, and the meeting became about that word recovered. This is the story of how hundreds of men and women recovered. Yeah. And as I'm sure you know, that's a provocative term for some people, that we've recovered, we're recovering, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And this lady asked in all innocence, what does that mean, we recovered? And somebody looked it up and it said, we're restored to a state of normality. So you're sort of going back mm. to a time when things are normal, right? And to some extent... I think recovery does that. Uh-huh. I think recovery gets you back to a place where you were before all the toxic stuff started. I think you do rewire. Mm-hmm. So maybe you recover sufficient to be able to start recovery. Exactly. So I think you do go back and rewire a little bit. Having said that, you know, we don't live in the past. And one of the little joys of recovery, you're talking about rewiring your brain and changing yourself and everything, is there's always something in front of you to recover from. There's always some little kink of behavior. There's always some little sneaky character defect. There's there's always some way of making yourself more effective. Sure. There's there's always an opportunity to change and get better. Mm-hmm. So I tend to not think of it as you can go back and fix things. I tend to think of it as you can move forward and fix fix things. If if you know what I mean. Yeah, or you can move forward with the knowledge that those things will probably remain unfixed, but you can have an influence on the rest of your life just by different behavior. That that makes a, that makes a lot of sense to me too. So when you decided at you said I think 19 that you had had enough, how far down had you gone? What was your behavior like just prior to you deciding to go into Alcoholics Anonymous? I'd been street homeless for a number of years before I came in here. 
And the best way I can explain it is the system sort of forgot, <laughs> missed me. I, 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 I slipped through a number of different <laughs> nets and I was essentially hustling to stay alive mm-hmm. and hustling to get enough money to be able to drink, to be able to use. Mm. So a great deal of this was sleeping in parks, a great deal of this was sleeping in cemeteries. Occasionally I'd luck out and arrive on someone's couch for a couple of days and Hmm. blah, blah, blah. But it was this hard scrabble to survive. I didn't Hmm. sort of exist officially, if you know what I mean. You you would say social security. I I didn't have um, a national insurance number or an address. I hadn't been to school. I'd never sat an exam. I didn't have a mobile phone number. All these things. Hmm. So my view of myself was very, very poor. The best way I can put it is, I had nothing to sort of confirm that I was a human being, if if you know what I mean. I do. And that's a whole separate subculture in and of itself, isn't it? It's a whole separate subculture. You'd slipped off the grid. I slipped off the grid. But you replaced that with a subculture that there must have been a lot of other people around you who were doing the very same thing. Yes, yes and no. Mm, In what way? There's there's a lot of people who, who, as you say, slip off the grid. But I had a a very peculiar... I was mentally very, very unwell when I got sober. Mm -hmm. And so I had all of the kind of cunning you need to survive when I needed it. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, I was extremely unsociable and extremely unpresentable, if you know what I mean. So even in the kind of sub-world of people who are just scrabbling to survive, I was regarded as weird and sort of beyond, beyond the pale. Maybe the best way I can explain this to you. I come from a place called Brixton mm-hmm. in South London. Yeah. A, a sort of working class bit of South London. Sure. And Brixton is renowned as an extremely druggy area. Mm-hmm. It's one of those parts of London where drug dealers aren't subtle. They kind of go, drugs! Who wants the drugs? <laughs> I've never taken marijuana in my life. Really? I've never, I've never done acid. I've never done cocaine. I've never done heroin. I've never done meth. I've never done any of the drugs. That that amazes me because when you said drinking and using earlier, I I was just waiting for you to get to all the drugs that you took. <laughs> now, now, <laughs> amazing. <laughs> using maybe in the sense of acting out, but I've got very little drug experience. I I do NA because I love the fellowship, yeah. but I've got very little drug experience. Uh huh. The reason I've got very little drug experience is I grew up in an in a neighbourhood, mm-hmm. Brixton, Camberwell, South London, packed with drug dealers, mm-hmm. all of whom thought I was too weird to sell drugs to. So the, we, we would be in this situation. There was one guy, and he used to operate on Camberwell Green, mm-hmm. which is quite a posh, posh area now. And he had, like, you know, Stetson hat, no shirt, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Pretty out there, homeless drug dealer type. And a couple of times I tried to score off him, and he went, no. you're too odd you're too damn odd so they figured you were already there uh you know (laughs) i I don't know what they figured i was when i got sober i looked completely different for a start so i I would have been 19 i had a large aubergine colored mohawk Uh i didn't wear a shirt i had like a leather jacket big old s&m d-lock collar around my neck makeup Mm. because you need a certain amount of makeup and i looked shocking Mm. now i didn't particularly think i looked shocking but people tell me i look shocking and so even in the world of 
being on the street and struggling to survive, people found me a bit unacceptable. Mm -hmm. Now, the particular thing that got me into the fellowship Mm -hmm. was I'd heard of AA, right? Mm -hmm. And I think if we're being honest, most people now have heard of AA. They see it in popular culture. They see it in the media, right? Yeah. You see it on soap operas. You see it all all over the place. Mm -hmm. And I'd certainly heard of it. Mm Mm-hmm. I'd heard of celebrities go into it. I wasn't particularly attracted to that, but it's how I'd heard of it. So I knew about AA, and I knew it was going to be a means to survive at some point. I pretty much knew from a very early age it was either going to be drink yourself to death or go to AA. Hmm. And I and I knew that almost through the drinking, if you know what I mean. So you knew that early on, and yet uh, were you just waiting for yourself to get bad enough to either die or go into AA? Because obviously you could have gone in at any time along the way, right? My thinking was I didn't deserve it. Didn't deserve AA? Didn't deserve it. Didn't deserve it. Because understand, I was in a very, very mentally unwell place when I got sober. So doing things that were good for me Uh didn't occur to me. And, and, and again, I, and I knew AA was good for me, and I knew that I knew there was a bit of hope there, and I knew my life would improve, and yet I didn't think I was entitled to do that. If if you if that makes sense to you. Now let me ask you something. Um, along the way, let's say from the beginning of your AA experience, at what point were you able to kind of go back and look at your previous life and identify what the mental illness was in your life? And and what did that consist of? Oh my goodness. Probably 10 years in. 10 years in. Maybe, maybe, yeah, 10 or 12 years in. And because for the first big chunk of recovery, Mm -hmm. it was simply a question of scrabbling to survive. Oh yeah. Going to tons and tons of meetings, Mm -hmm. living off the biscuits in meetings and that kind of thing, which lots of people do. Once they've got a bit of recovery and a bit of safety, Mm -hmm. a bit of security in their recovery, then you start looking back at yourself and saying, oh, I used to do that and I can fix this and I can fix the other thing. Yeah. So what did you uncover at 10 years? What knowledge or what was so insightful at 10 years that you were able to look back and say, now I get it? A very, very simple thing. If you come from tons of abuse then you're going to have a rather hard time getting sober because you're not used to, A, nice things happening to you, Mm -hmm. and B, setting yourself up for nice things. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. You know, I've never had to deal with a specific mental illness. I've never had to deal with a mental illness in the sense of, whatever, schizophrenia or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I just had to deal with the, what, what should we call it, the mental and emotional after effects of coming from a very, very challenging background. Yeah. And eventually you get to the stage where you say, that's what led me to use like this. Mm-hmm. I am allowed to recover from that. Hmm. But it takes a while. It takes a while, depending on the person, it takes different amounts of time for everybody. So what what does one of the promises mean to you about we will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it? Regret the past? <laughs> it's a shame it's a podcast rather than visual because you can't convey the look of glee I have on my face now that we're talking about I, the I big can, book. I can see it. I can see it. <laughs> I can see it in your face. No, it's fun. Yeah, you, can, you can't convey the fact that I literally started hugging myself when you talked about yeah. the big book there. We'll not regret the past or shut the door on it is an amazing idea. For a start, it's perfectly balanced. Um, What are we trying to do in recovery? We're trying to not be regretful of what's happened, 
Mm-hmm. But we're not going to shut the door on it. We're going to learn from it. Right. And and that little phrase that you picked out there is almost like a mantra for life. Yeah. You know, we won't regret the past or shut the door on it. So what I do with sponsees and stuff, when they're looking at childhood or a divorce or something they did when they were using, mm-hmm. that's the sort of lens you try and look at it through. Yeah. We won't regret the past, but we also won't shut the door on it. You know, we'll learn from it, but we won't live in it. It's... It's a beautiful little philosophy, I guess you'd call it. And and we need a certain amount of recovery in our lives, and obviously the promises are where they are for a reason, but it does take a certain amount of recovery for us to be able to look at the past without being sucked back into it and be able to take what we've learned from the past and apply it to our futures. And so uh, it sounds to me like you did that at some point within your early sobriety. It keeps you just the right distance away from it. So let me ask you about the first meetings of AA that you went into. Sure I, thing. I knew a guy, uh, he, was, he was very, very well known in these parts, who lived on the streets out in L.A. for a number of years. I mean, literally on the streets, under bridges, that kind of thing. And yeah. the very first thing that brought him into AA was they were giving away free cookies or biscuits, as, <laughs> as the Brits would say. And it was just enough to get him to come in until he finally figured out what the meetings were about and cleared up a little bit. And he ended up dying with, I don't know, 40 plus years sobriety a number of years ago. But I wonder what your early days were like coming in from the streets into AA. What did you think about it at that time? I can tell you about my first meeting. Mm -hmm. And I think I can... I can still be appropriate with anonymity and tell you where my first meeting was. So my first meeting was in a treatment centre in southwest London. Not that I went to treatment. So it's a meeting in a treatment centre. Okay, right. There were a couple of times I could have gone into treatment, but frankly, I couldn't get it together. I, I couldn't get it together to, like, fill the form in, if you know what I mean. But there were a couple of times I wound up in front of doctors and I could have gone into treatment, but I didn't do it. So you at some point saw perhaps the need to go into treatment, but you could never quite pull it off. Not th- not quite that. Um, a couple of times I was kind of offered treatment, but a combination of thinking I didn't deserve it, fear, yeah. and severe unmanageability meant that I didn't manage it. So I pitched up at this meeting inside a treatment center. I pitched up there having been sleeping in a park for a while, Mm -hmm. weighing nine stone, aubergine-coloured Mohican, dog collar, (laughs) floor-length leather coat, Matrix-style, pierced nipple displayed eye makeup. That was the look. Right. Back in it's a somebody once described it as like um the way I look when I got sober, they described it as like Boy George meets Albert Steptoe. <laughs> now Americans Americans won't know who Albert Steptoe is, but it's worth Googling the fact that I look like Boy George meeting Albert Steptoe. Anyway, the first person who ever spoke to me mm-hmm. was a lady who was greeting at this meeting. And she was maybe fifty, mm-hmm. uh uh floral print Laura Ashley dress, nice little tasteful crucifix, a church lady. Mm. <laughs> and and the first words I heard in AA was she looked at me, I was growling at her, and she said, come inside, there's tea if you want it. Mm. So the literally the first lesson I learned in AA was no matter what you look like or what you smell like mm. or what your situation is, you can come into the meeting as long as you're reasonably well behaved. Mm-hmm. Sure. So I sat through that meeting and it struck me that everybody in that meeting 
was dealing with alcoholism and they had similar it's a, it's a it's a miserable thing to relate to but mm-hmm. they seem to be talking about similar depths of despair to what I was kind of experiencing mm-hmm. and they found ways of dealing with it so there were people talking about paying their bills mm-hmm. or going to work or you know i i had this little difficulty with my partner but we ironed it out and we got it sorted so these are all things that that never occurred in your life at that point and you're trying to relate to experiences you never had trying to relate to experiences i've never really had but equally going oh i can be an alcoholic and do that or i can be an alcoholic and have that that level of functionality in my life and it had never occurred to me before. Huh. It was mind-blowing. And as I say, I'd been sort of waiting to go to AA mm-hmm. <laughs> for about five years beforehand. And it turned out there was more on offer than I thought. You know, you're one of the first people I've ever heard use that phrase, I was waiting to go to AA. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> what, you need to, what, you need to remember, what you need to remember, Howard, because I've listened to a few of your back issues... Right. You, you have a lot of Americans on the oh, podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, I think it's peculiarly English yeah. that you have to sit around and go, I'll, I'll go to AA if I feel they'll welcome me in there. It's, it's, like, it's, a le- it's a level of diffidence you maybe only get from English people. But I turned up because <laughs> I eventually thought, well, even without an invite, I'm presumably allowed to go along to this thing. So went along, as I say, heard the practicality of it. At the end of the meeting... I got 12-stepped. You've probably noticed the big change in the way we 12-step people now because how we 12-step people now, there's a great deal of we'll love you until you can love yourself and all that kind of, all of that love, love, loveliness. Uh-huh. What I got was I was walking out of the meeting and a guy bodily grabbed me by the collar, by, by the collar of my jacket and went, where are you going, son? Mm. And I went, oh, I'm going I'm to go away and think about this for a little while. And he said, no, you're not. And he got me, it, I, I'm not going to say he pushed me into a van, but he physically guided me toward a van, mm-hmm. right? And drove me to another meeting, same night, late night in South London. Mm-hmm. And I sat through that meeting, which finished at, it's still, it's still there on a Friday night, finished about midnight. And at the end of it, he gave me a definition of alcoholism. Because I sort of was dimly aware that I had this problem with alcoholism, but I didn't quite know what alcoholism was. Mm -hmm. And he asked me a couple of key questions. He said to me, "Um, can you control your behavior when you drink? Mm. And I said, no. And then he said to me, can you control how much you drink? And I said, no. And that's your definition of alcoholism right there. Mm. When he said to me, can you control your behavior when you drink? Mm -hmm. He didn't say to me, are you nasty when you drink? He said to me, can you control your behavior when you drink? Hmm. And the answer was no. The, the problem with us, the problem with alcoholics, isn't that we're nasty all the time, isn't that we're nice all the time, it's that you don't know what's going to happen when we drink. Yeah, and behavior can mean a lot of things. It can mean good, it can mean bad, it can mean... But just the unpredictability of it, not being able to control it, is definitely one of those tenets of that particular uh, thing. 100%. Hundred percent. And when he and when he asked me, "Can you control how much you drink?" He didn't say to me, "Do you drink a lot?" He said, "Can you control how much you drink?" 
because as you probably know, most alcoholics will occasionally go out for a beer and maybe have a beer and be shocked. Oh, look, I managed to have a beer before they go out and get into blackout the next time round. Sure. So, and it, so he gave me the simplest definition of alcoholism. Mm-hmm. And for all the sort of ups and downs I've had in AA, which have largely been of my own making, if I'm honest with you, my, my difficulties I've had with AA, I, a, a few of them have been self-created. A few of them have been, you know, I came in at 19 and I've been through various changes. Mm-hmm. But for all of the difficulties I've had with my recovery and sometimes with AA, if you've got that simple little definition of what this disease is and you've got a way of knowing you can recover from it, you're, you're going to be in some sort of grateful, open-minded space, you know? And I'm so grateful that what he did was he gave me a little simple definition. So this happens after, this is like your first day in AA that all this is happening? My first night in AA. Your first night. I've already been bundled into the back of a van. <laughs> Yeah, old school. Wow. How did things progress from there? I mean, uh, were you able to see the similarities early on, or were you still noticing the differences? My worst skill in recovery is noticing similarities. Hmm. Now, in a way, I don't mind that. I've got a very, very good friend who says, if you do that thing in, you know, oh, you told my story tonight, Mm -hmm. then maybe that means that, you're not sort of in touch with your story. Maybe it's even a little codependent. Go, you told my story right. for me. But the, the skill I've sort of had, at any given time I'm working on a recovery skill, and at the moment it is that thing of trying to see the similarities and not the differences. Because all I did for years was notice differences. You've almost got to train yourself to just say, as a tiny example, that person's in pain today. Yeah. Now, I've been in pain at a certain point. Uh-huh. Maybe what they're going through is not the same as what I'm going through, but just try and have a little bit of empathy. But for the longest time, not only did I not notice the similarities, I didn't know I didn't notice the people. Yeah, I get that. <laughs> so I, I kind of um would go to meetings. I wouldn't really say that I hated everyone. That's never been my thing with AA. Right. But I would go to meetings and just listen to the stuff about recovery from alcoholism. Right. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And just take take that. Right. And I was very single-minded. And years later, people would say to me, oh, I remember you because when you came in, you used to do this and you used to do that. And I didn't notice any of that for the first, for the first seven or eight years. Mm-hmm. I scarcely noticed other people. Yeah. And I didn't really build up any kind of fellowship with other people. Yeah. What I wanted to do was come in and darn well do these steps to the best of my ability to try and recover from this disease. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What what you're talking about there requires an enormous exercise of humility to be able to accept the fact in a humble way that you are like other people. Because if I'm not like other people, that means that whether I'm better or worse than them, what that does say is I'm different from them. And differences are what we notice, and then we have to see the similarities. When did you first start noticing the similarities, though? I mean, because, listen, William, you could you could have the Siri voice in your iPhone talk everything that you hear in AA with no emotion, with no person attached to it, and you could probably learn from that 
But that fellowship, that, that, that warmth, that closeness to other people that enriches the program just isn't there. Um, if, I, if I'm being honest, it, it, it's taken a darn long time to note similarities, not differences. It's taken a darn long time to get in any way involved in the fellowship of AA because I was, for the longest time, so obsessed with the program, the program, the program, the program. Now, I know that, you know, there are people who will say, you know, you can't rely entirely on the fellowship to stay sober. It has to be a balance between the two things. But I think you can you can mm-hmm. go too far into just being obsessed with the oh, program yeah. and scarcely notice the other people. And my first big involvement with the fellowship of AA was probably COVID. Really? Yeah. So, you know, I'd done a, a meeting a day for however many years and I'd done kind of boards and committees and conventions and spoken at conventions and sponsored people and I'd have been a tradition mm-hmm. sponsor and a step sponsor and had sponsors and all this. The fellowship thing really kicked in for me at the start of COVID. Huh. So you spent, let's say, the better part of 15 years, if we give a little bit for the yeah. COVID and maybe the, the period just before, you spent it engaged in AA, but not engaged in the fellowship. Largely. Yeah, you were around other people. I mean, Bill Wilson, when they started this whole thing, they were mailing books out to people hoping that they could get sober just by that. And obviously there are things in there that tell them how to build a fellowship. But, you know, I, I have to admit that when you said that, I felt some sadness yeah. because I, I know what fellowship has meant in my own recovery and how there were times that it wasn't about how the steps were going to help me. It was about that guy who I could call. It was about that hug that I could get in a meeting. And I wonder, how did you respond to that kind of thing? Because I'm sure there must have been people doing that to you. Were you repulsed by it? Were you very stand <laughs> Office? Did you avoid? I, I greet at meetings, William, and there are guys who will walk around the other side of the building and come in another door <laughs> to avoid having to give me a handshake or a hug. So I wonder what was like. What was that like for you? So, so the first thing I would say, Howard, I've been in meetings where you're greeting and you're superb at it. <laughs> you're, you're, you're maybe the friendliest man in AA, and if if greeting in meetings is a skill, you, you might be the best I've ever met at it. However, in answer to your question. Was I standoffish? Um, standoffish is an extraordinarily polite word for what I was. Was it antisocial? Are we talking antisocial again? <laughs> no, um, not even antisocial. Well, mm, yes, I, I'll go. Well, I'll I'll go with self-sufficient. Self-sufficient. So I really didn't get on well with the hug thing in AA. Not because of any kind of, uh, you're hugging me thing, but literally because why are you and I standing here hugging when we could be talking about step seven? Do you know what I mean? Right. Why don't we get on with that? So you were all business. Oh, I'm all business. That's a, that's a nice way of putting it. And so, and the business of let's go for a coffee, I mean, it, you know, yes, it happened a bit, but um, I just regarded it as... You come in here to do, like you go to a gym. You you don't mess about. You go in there, you do your business, you get healthier, you come out. And it took me a, a little while to realize that there can be more to it than that, you know? And incidentally, I don't, I don't really beat myself up for that because my rock bottom was such that I sort of think that if I had have come in here and mucked about, I might have 
to be frank with you, I might not be alive now. Mm-hmm. So I sort of had to be all business for a while. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, check out my big book podcast, the complete unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories, including rare stories not published in the third or fourth editions. Listen to all 85 episodes by subscribing to the Big Book Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Or listen on bigbookpodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo, a first edition Big Book wearing headphones. And we're back. That whole connection thing, I mean, I really had a difficult time with it my early years. And and if I go back and I look at that period in my sobriety early on, what I notice is that for a period of that sobriety, I didn't have a sponsor. I had nobody to show me how to act in meetings. I really didn't want what other people had. And even if I did, I figured I could attain it myself through my own self-will or whatever else. But it wasn't until I finally admitted that I was powerless and my life had become unmanageable. And what was what's funny about it, William, is that my sponsor and I, when we went to meetings together and in the early years, we used to have this thing where we would uh, we would wait for the word God to come up and then we'd we'd wink at each other across the room. And there were some meetings where it was never yeah. mentioned. And there were others where we were winking in the first 10 seconds. Uh, I, I want to see if you and I are, are going to be winking here in a minute as we talk about a power greater than ourselves. How did that manifest for you or did it? Well, the the first thing I'd say, because you were talking about connection with other people in the fellowship, it's one of these funny things about recovery. You become more reliant on a higher power. Yeah. And as you become more reliant on a higher power, you're somewhat less reliant on other people. So you've got to be careful to keep that balanced. You've got to be careful to not let that be another way of cutting you off from people, if you know what I mean. So you see that as an either-or situation and not an and? I don't see it as an either-or situation. I see it as... You've got to keep it balanced. Do, do, do you know what I mean? Okay, so you have God on this side, you've got people on the other side. No, 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 no. You want, you want them to be together. You want them to be together, but so what you're saying then is that your willingness to, let's say, link into a higher power was concurrent with your relationships growing and blossoming. Is there any connection there? Yes, that, that's a better way of putting it, actually, yeah. Because initially my thing was either or. You've either got a relationship with a higher power or a relationship with people. And then it became, no, you you can have both and they're connected and all that. I would go so far as to say that when you reach what we'll loosely call long-term recovery, mm-hmm. recovery is pretty much about your relationship with a higher power at a certain point. Yeah, The rest of it sort of supports that. You know, it becomes about how you're getting on with a higher power. And the thing with that is is it changes all the time. I find it changes almost on a daily basis. Uh And one of the big ways of avoiding pain in recovery is to let it change, if you know what I mean. Uh It's to just let it change and not fight it. So I've had bits of recovery where I was um, religious, Mm -hmm. and I've had bits of recovery where I was a confirmed atheist, and I've had bits of recovery where other people or the fellowship was my higher power. Was that all circumstantial? 
I mean, people usually, they, they usually don't become atheists until they feel like God has abandoned them over all the bad stuff happening in their life, or they find religion because of all the good things that are happening and they can't find anything else to accredit it to. What was your experience? My, my experience of being an atheist in recovery was I was angry about other things, and so I, so I sort of figured that um, being an atheist in recovery gave me a bit of an excuse to be angry in meetings, and I could kind of go into meetings and say, you're all doing it wrong and you're all being silly. And it wasn't a particularly happy time. Being an agnostic or atheist in recovery is fine, and it's some people's thing. For me, I was like that when I was in a bit of an angry period of recovery, and I was sort of, I was almost using it as an excuse. I get it. Where would you say you are today with your relationship with, with your higher power? And what has that looked like as you've gotten closer to people? Where would I say I was today? I would say, a bit like I said to you a minute ago, the key thing is to accept that it changes and to not fight the fact that it changes. The key thing is also to kind of ride with it. So I've become quite convinced over the last couple of years that my higher power has a sense of humor and what's more he has quite a weird dark sense of humor <laughs> so therefore you'll kind of have things given to you in life that are clearly god incidences or whatever mm -hmm. and you sort of go that's weird <laughs> how the heck did that happen why is this all of a sudden and you realize it's your higher power sometimes i think has a, a peculiar sense of humor and your best bet is is to not stop and try and figure it out, but just continue to go with the flow. Is to ride it. Yeah, I get it. And I always get this response ease. It's a very, very tricky thing to balance this idea of you're handing your will and your life over. Mm -hmm. You're handing your will and your life over so that you have a bit more control over your life. So you're putting your faith in something else, but you don't know quite what it's going to do but you're trusting that, but you're not just leaning back and letting your higher power take care of everything. You're going to take action as well. So it's this weird, I almost think of it as like surfing, if you know what I mean. You're kind of going on the currents of it, your higher power. Well, it's it's that old God, uh, grant me the knowledge of your will and the power to carry it out. So we're asking for both things simultaneously. Show me what you want me to do and then guide me in the doing of it or motivate me in the doing of it. And, and the other thing that makes me laugh a little bit is... You'll hear people say, I'm a bit confused about the higher power, or I've lost I've lost touch with the higher power. Mm. And you sort of think, and, and that can be, particularly when you're new, mm -hmm. that can be a quite distressing thing in recovery. Losing touch with your higher power, can you can think, oh my gosh, this is the end of the world. But it always makes me smile a little bit because the, the greatest religious minds and the greatest philosophers they haven't sorted out the higher power thing yet. They're still asking questions, you know? And so it's never going to get solved. It, that is to say, you can be doing this program for 30, 40, 50 years. There's always going to be that weird little air of mystery and intangibility about the higher power thing. 
and yet you're relying on it. That's a great point you just made. And what's interesting about it to me is that I think as long as we are continuing to ask questions, that's a great sign that we are involved. As long as I'm questioning things, it means that I care about whatever it is I'm questioning about. And whether or not I get the answers for it may not be as important as just knowing the right questions to ask and when to ask them. So I, I definitely get that. Now, while you were progressing in your program, 23 years is a heck of a long time to stay sober. Can you identify some times within that period of sobriety where your commitment to staying sober was seriously challenged or perhaps you found yourself dealing with a difficult situation and thought, eh, maybe this isn't going to be the answer for this particular thing? I was thinking about this yesterday. Times when recovery has been tested or relationship with AA has been tested. For me, the, the most peculiar thing is the times when recovery has been tested mm -hmm. have not been the times when you would think it would be tested. So, for example, as I say, my family largely stopped talking to me when I got sober. They, they, were, they weren't really talking to me when I was drinking, but it, right. nev it never came back when I got sober. Mm -hmm. And when I, was, when I was about 11 years sober, I got wind of the fact that my mum died. And that didn't particularly test my recovery. Hmm. That was kind of, oh, my God, this is this very sad thing. Yeah. Maybe all the sadder because I didn't know her. Or, or at least I didn't know her much after the age of about 11 or 12. Um, but funny enough, that didn't test my recovery. Relationships ending, it's heartbreaking, but that didn't really test my recovery. Or work stuff, that didn't really test my recovery. So the big things, when big waves crash on your recovery, I found that people tend to say, well, I better get to a meeting and I better start praying more and I better work with a newcomer and I better do this and I better do that. Mm -hmm. They're ill or whatever in recovery. You tend to get more involved in your program. When my recovery has been really tested, it's largely been of my own making. So it's that thing of not really having any con much connection to the fellowship. So you'll, you'll have a little idea about something in recovery. And rather than run it past someone and them say, no, William, that's a very silly idea. You should, you should, don't, don't go with that. Sometimes it will kind of stay in your head for a bit and then it will get more complicated and then a bit more complicated and then it will turn into a sort of crisis of faith and then you'll think, what have I been doing in AA all these years? I could have been you know, doing something more fun. So my big times when my recovery has been tested uh -huh. have essentially been me only listening to my own head. With, with with no outside I get it. contradictions or anything like that. Me going, here's what I think, and I'm going to keep thinking this and go with it until I run into a bit of trouble. And then you're in trouble. Yeah, and, and the frame of mind that I've seen people do that, still while trying to convince themselves and those around them that they're still engaged with the program, they said, I'm, I was going through this situation, but uh, I, knew, I knew what my friends would say, and I, I already knew what my sponsor would say, so I didn't really need to call him because I dealt with this before, and, and this time I just, you know, I could handle it myself. Is that what you're talking about? That kind of thing. And the key, and the key phrase there is, I knew what my friends would say. Ah. And sometimes you're right. Sometimes, you know, oh, yeah, no, they'll tell me to do this, they'll tell me to do that. But it's a bit of a lack of humility to say that. And the other thing is that you've got to remember in AA is sometimes the best advice you get will come from completely random sources. 
you know it may come from somebody you don't particularly like uh-huh. it may come from somebody who's a day sober or still using but they might have the little golden bit of advice that you need to sort that situation out so i do my best today cuz i'm you know i'm i'm a fairly self-sufficient person and i'm a fairly shy person so i it, and that and that doesn't get talked about a lot in recovery by the way no Th- this idea of oh we're going to talk about our problems and put it all out there if you're not into doing that it's not necessarily this big resistant self will thing some people are shy and they don't it, it doesn't come naturally to them to tell other people their stuff so self-reliance outweighs reliance upon others it can and then we learn that and then we learn that lesson again by something happening where we realize oh man I, here i was muddling around in this thing for a while and why didn't i talk to this guy earlier the few words he said to me made all the difference in the world and we learn that lesson yep. and then somewhere along the way we forget that lesson and it's like our sobriety becomes largely a matter of learning and forgetting learning and forgetting where does your mind predominate in that situation? Is it more about forgetting than it is learning, or or what would you say? Oh, boy. That's a heck of a question, Howard. Is it more about learning or forgetting? I'm going to give you a sitting-on-the-fence answer. I'm going to say it's about both. You're constantly learning new things in recovery, but as but as you said, you're constantly forgetting that you behave like that and um, opening yourself to a bit of change, you know? Let me also ask you this, uh, because I, you know I'm I am a firm believer when it comes to the relationships within AA is that they feel, or in the early days, in the early years, caring about other people felt like you know I was getting nothing in return, or uh, you know, however I felt, I thought that caring about them didn't necessarily help them. Hmm. So because you know if you've got low self-esteem, then it's very easy to extract from that, that if I've got low self-esteem, it means that uh, nobody possibly is affected by or, or influenced by my thinking or my encouragement oh, or whatever else. Uh, so uh, what I'm wondering is, in, in your sobriety, have you noticed the gifts that you being available to other people for yourself has given to them? Yes. You know the business of the biggest gift we can give other people is time. Time. And listening to them, right? Yes. So if you actually think about that for a minute, you're sitting in a coffee shop listening to a step four for an hour and a half, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> they always take more than an hour and a half, but you know what I mean. And what are you actually doing to help that person? Well, how can I put it? You're sort of giving them a bit of time to not only say, this thing happened to me and here's how I felt about it, you're also giving them a bit of time to work out extra stuff about how they feel about it. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody once said about interviews, the, the the beautiful thing about interviews is you find out what you didn't know you thought. You know what I mean? Because you're kind of going, oh, here's... And suddenly, because this person's dev- devoting a little bit of time to me, suddenly, oh, look, this is in my subconscious, but this would never have come out if this person hadn't have sat here and listened to me for an hour. You know? Yeah. So... If you're giving of yourself, it's not a word I often use. It's profound, the effect it can have on other people, you know? And not forgetting, if you're working with people with low rock bottoms who have come in in very difficult states, Mm -hmm. sometimes you'll be doing a bit of work with someone in the fellowship and no one has listened to them respectfully for years, for blinking decades, you know? Mm -hmm. And the sheer sort of 
emotion and trust of that is beautiful. It's beautiful, you know? People gave me bits of time um, to listen to step fours and everything and or, mm-hmm. ju- or, or just to sort of listen to me ring up and have a moan. Sure. And no one was doing that when I was drunk on a park bench growling at people, you know? Yeah. And so it kind of... I, I'd never thought of it like that until you just said it. Well, you know, one, one of the things I was wondering about was, can you acknowledge the gift to yourself of being there for other people? Nowadays, yes. If you'd have asked me five years ago what the deal is with helping people in AA, Mm -hmm. I would have said to you, it's a little bit like getting a personal trainer or a tennis coach or something like that, you know? In as much as you haven't got a big book to hand, but you get a big book, plonk, let's study this, da-da. But I sort of realize that's cheapening it a little bit. It's very impersonal too, isn't it? It's very impersonal and it's and it's cheapening it a little bit. Because even if you're you work with other people in AA at that level of we study the big book together, you're giving them a very there's that word again, you're giving them a very profound chance of hope and of not dying of this disease. So I'm not the best in the world at patting myself on the back. But I would say yes, you I I do, I do my best. I, I do my best to be there for others. It certainly sounds like you do. I mean, I'm able to sense that thousands of miles away just in your demeanor and the way that you're phrasing what you're saying. Uh, obviously, what we'd like to be able to give to others is experience, strength, and hope. It occurs to me that maybe before that five years ago, you were giving facts, knowledge, and whatever else in lieu of what you're now giving as experience, strength, and hope. Is that a fair statement? That's a brilliant way of putting that, Howard. Thank you. <laughs> and, that's, and that's clearer than I've thought of it. Yes, that's very true. The thing you've got to remember, the thing I have to remember, you know, you develop in recovery. Mm-hmm. You, you go through personal development in recovery at the rate you go through it. So for a long time in recovery, as I say, it was about survival. And, and then you move on to sort of... Um, higher level stuff, then you move on to your humility and your emotional connection and all of this kind of thing. The hierarchy of needs, that's what they call it in the psychology game, your hierarchy of needs. And yeah, and as you move up, you get into more emotional stuff. And that started to happen. A lot of that has happened post-COVID. Yeah, and I'm and I'm wondering about that. What was there about COVID? And obviously, the format of meetings has changed enormously oh, yeah. via Zoom and remote access to people in different parts of the world. What was there about the format of Zoom that made it so transformative for you? Before I say that, I'll tell you one thing about the, the, the online meeting. Okay. Because I was thinking about this yesterday. Every opinion I've ever had about sort of AA as a whole, the fellowship as a whole, mm-hmm. has been wrong. <laughs> so, and every time I've ever taken a big stand about something in AA, and how could we do this? This is destroying our beautiful fellowship. <laughs> very, very shortly thereafter, it's turned out I've not been a little bit wrong. I've not been slightly misinformed. I've been 180 degrees wrong about it. Uh-huh. So just to give you a couple of examples, back in the day in meetings in London, there was this thing about introducing court cards. Uh-huh. And when it came up, I thundered against this thing of, well, we're, we're, we have no opinion on outside issues and we can't be allowing criminals into it. Right. And, it tur- and it turned out that 
it saves lives and it gets people sober. It does, right? yeah, sure. And then there was a thing maybe eight years ago, and it was all about advertising AA. And I was involved in the, the intergroup structure at the time. Mm-hmm. And there was a six or seven second clip of a of an AA meeting, a, a, a dramatized AA meeting. You saw the back of heads. That was all you saw. Mm-hmm. And this thing, this thing went out on a magazine show, a magazine TV show in the UK. And I went from meeting to meeting, and I wrote letters to the board, and I got, <laughs> I got committees within committees together to say, "What are you people trying to do to kill alcohol?" I couldn't have been more wrong. I could not have been more wrong. And I thundered against adverts on the buses for AA and all of this. (laughs) I've been totally consistently wrong about everything, as it were, big about AA as a fellowship, if you know what I mean. I do. And and what's interesting about it is as you laugh about it and as you tell me those stories, I see the William, the really truly humble William coming out there. The fact that you can laugh at that now when it was so darn important to you then, I think is a big sign of humility. Howard, could it be 90% humility, 10% stupidity? That's not a bad mix. Well, I've, I've been passionate about certain things within AA as well. And when it came to court cards, you're calling them or papers that people have to have signed, whether it's a nudge from the judge or a, a spouse or any other reasons who've actually made it. I've known a whole lot of those people who don't. And I learned from both of them. Have you found that to be true for you? I, I found that to completely be the case but above all with the with the court cast thing i found that i was completely wrong as i've been completely wrong about most things in aa the fellowship the politics of aa stuff and the most wrong i've been <laughs> is about online meetings so early 2020 wasn't it the covid thing kicked in mm-hmm. and if you'd have asked me in sort of December 2019 what i thought about online aa meetings mm-hmm. i would have said to you well, they're very nice, but they have nothing to do with AA. And, and, if you're an alco- and, and if you're an alcoholic, you've no business going there because the whole thing is an abomination before God and earth. So I went along to an online AA meeting, I don't know, uh, two weeks into the first lockdown. And the first thing that happened was I saw faces that I hadn't seen for about 10 years. You just lose track of them, right? Yeah. And a a meeting that you and I go to, I saw various people who were very, they meant a great deal to me in my early recovery, and they'd moved here or they'd moved there or they'd they'd moved just outside London. I hadn't seen them. And it was like, oh, so-and-so's doing well. So-and-so's alive. I can reconnect with so-and-so. Yeah. So that was quite beautiful. Mm -hmm. And then I said, well, of course, it's going to mean that old older people do not have access to AA, and that will be a tragedy. And a friend of mine, and I won't say her name, a friend of mine um, is a former ballerina in the rooms, Uh and she's 83 years old, Mm -hmm. and she hadn't been able to make it to a meeting for about nine months prior to the start of lockdown. And suddenly she was doing three meetings a day and sponsoring loads of people because she could get to meetings again. Yeah. You understand me? Yeah, I do. So my little theory of, well, what what about the older people? It's like, no, the older people... They're sat indoors anyway, so they're going to enjoy online meetings if they can't get to a meeting. And then I said, well, what about the cost? I mean, this, this, not everybody has an internet connection. Yeah. But then someone pointed something out to me. 
this is maybe London centric. Right. It might apply if you're in sort of Los Angeles or somewhere as well. The cost, if you live in Zone Three of London, to get into Zone One to go to a meeting, if you're driving, uh-huh. probably about forty pounds. By the time you paid your congestion charge and your um whatever other charge, and put money into the pot and paid for a sandwich or paid for a coffee, uh-huh. probably about forty pounds. Times that by seven, and if you're taking public transport, probably about twenty pounds. Times that by seven. The average cost of internet use for a day is 6p. Yeah. So there's me saying, <laughs> why are we denying people this access to meetings? It's like, no, it's considerably cheaper to go online to meetings. And I, 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 can, feel, I can feel your counter-argument coming, Howard, so let me say a couple more things. The other thing that started to happen for me was I fell into proper fellowship for the first time in my life. Hmm. So... I fell into people calling me all the time and me calling people, partly because the lockdown was such a weird thing and uh-huh. we all had time on our hands. But I found myself making friends in AA. In I, I've got two home groups, Howard. They're both in Los Angeles. And suddenly I've got all these friends in Los Angeles and in New Zealand and in Egypt and, God, and you know, in South End and Tooting and God knows what, as a result of online meetings. Huh. And it plugged me in. And my last word, because I can feel there are going to be people get listening to this getting irritated, going, bloody online meetings. What really sealed it for me, myself and a friend of mine at the start of the lockdown, we started a big book study, uh-huh. just me and him every night. We didn't know how long this thing was going to go on for. And we came to that page in the preface to the fourth edition mm-hmm. that I'm sure you know about um, modem to modem. Do you know about that? Modem to modem. Oh, yeah. And we both stopped and we went, modem? Who the hell has a modem anymore? Your granny has a modem. That thing's been in the front of the big book about modem to modem and online meetings for 20 years now. Well, that and, you know, the online meetings have been available for many, many years to loners and other people who don't have access to other human beings. They're too far away or they're out at sea or wherever they are. Wherever they are. But they're up in the Appalachian Mountains or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I I ran into a lot of those people too. And people say that they didn't want to go to a meeting because it was online. My feeling was sometimes you just need a meeting no matter what, whether it's online, whether it's in person, whether it's by Morse code. It doesn't make any difference. You have to do what you have to do to stay sober and engaged, right? And, And it opens up access to recovery. Like I've got sponsees who are on sort of shift work. Uh-huh. So so they're coming they're coming out of work at four in the morning. And even if you live in London or even if you live in Los Angeles, there aren't there aren't in person meetings at four in the morning. Right. And suddenly they can get to a meeting a day. It's the most amazing thing. It's the most amazing thing. Yeah. And I'm I'm semi evangelical about online meetings. And, and don't get me wrong, I'm not I, I don't I don't say they're better than in person meetings. I simply say that there's been what they call in the big book a wholesale miracle about access to recovery. I was looking at this the other day. I've got two online home groups that are half a world away, Mm -hmm. and I've got lots of very close friends in them. And AA WhatsApp groups where people are supporting each other and AA Facebook pages and AA this and AA that. There's so much access to recovery, and and that's going to save so many lives. 
Well, and it's so rich and so so meaningful to so many people. It's really a, a beautiful thing when you realize that it doesn't make any difference how we connect as much as it does that we connect. And whether, whether it's electronically or whatever. And let me, let me say this. The lion's share of interviews I've done since I started this podcast a couple of years ago have been done by Zoom, have been done remotely. And sometimes it doesn't necessarily mean the best quality of audio, whatever else, but that's secondary to we can still communicate heart to heart, even though we're thousands of miles away. And I've had the opportunity today to glimpse your heart and who you are and it puts you into a different perspective oh, now for me in the groups that you and I are in together. That's beautiful. It's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, and I mean that. I mean that. And it allows me to say I love you and I care about you and I'm, I'm very impressed with your sobriety <laughs> and the strides that you've made staying sober all this time. It's amazing. I was thinking, though, about how, you know what I said about how there's always something in front of you to, um, to tackle? Yeah. Mm-hmm. In the last... Yeah three or four days, I've had my first mm-hmm. ever experience of being spoilt, of acting spoilt. <laughs> and I'll tell you, for, I'll tell you for why. Um, I work in education. I do bits of teaching, bits of educational psychology. Essentially, I do most of that from home on Zoom. So I'm in this chair most of the time dealing with people with educational problems or dealing with local education authorities or whatever I'm doing. Uh-huh. I'm going to Las Vegas in July. Now, I'm going to Las Vegas for two reasons. One, I've been invited to a conference. And two, mm-hmm. I'm going to go and see a singer called Morrissey, who you may or may not have heard of. But ma- but mainly, I'm going out there to go to a conference. And I booked my flight to Las Vegas um, on Saturday. And it took me all day Saturday to get this thing booked up and sorted. Sure. And I was on the phone to one of those famous Las Vegas hotels. And there was a complication with UK credit card versus American thing. And I found myself going, I want to go to Las Vegas. Let me go to Las Vegas like some (laughs) two-year-old. And I thought, no matter how spiritually advanced you get in recovery, you'll always find some new thing in front of you. And I found myself on Saturday afternoon sitting in this chair, getting a little bit a little bit precious because they were taking a while booking my room. <laughs> and, and I thought, <laughs> I was on a park bench. It, I wasn't even on a park bench. I was on a cemetery bench <laughs> sort of 23 years ago. <laughs> and suddenly, I've got this weird character defect to look at, feeling a bit spoiled. <laughs> and, and and immaturity and it's it, it's nice that it's not nice to feel spoiled but it's nice that there's always something there's always some little creeping thing somewhere in your recovery to work on it stops recovery from getting boring mm-hmm. you know that's right that's right and i'm hoping that what we've done today has enriched the quality of your sobriety i feel like maybe it has I want to really thank you for doing this today, William. You've you've made my day, and I think that this is going to be a very enlightening and helpful to people who listen. You you know how to express yourself well in the digital format, and I really appreciate that. Bless you, Howard. That's incredibly sweet of you. Thank you once again for doing this. You've, You've done a terrific job. It's a privilege to be asked, Howard. Well, my friends, that's a wrap for this episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, William B., for sharing his story, and thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please tell others how to listen to it? And please leave a rating or review for the show on your podcast app. That'll help others find us. As the number of worldwide listeners grows, this podcast will be of greater help to more and more people.
Of course, you can listen to all of my interviews by following this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to listen to every interview, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, no advertising is allowed, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.